Hey, welcome to the Word Weaver podcast, a place dedicated to the powerful web words weave and the deep layers they uncover. Here you'll find a compilation of tips, tricks, and words of wisdom from writers, authors, creatives, and entrepreneurs. Basically, cool people doing cool things in the world and how they've used words as weapons of mass creation and inspiration. You'll also hear from me, your host, Louise Johnson. I'm a former marketing maven in New York and Switzerland. I left a lucrative job to follow my dream of becoming a writer. It's a never-ending journey, so I figured we should all be in it together. I've learned a lot along the way, but it's a constant evolution. My favorite part is how little by little, letters turn into words, words become sentences, sentences become paragraphs, and before you know it, you've created something from nothing. And whenever that happens in life, it's nothing short of magic. So grab a coffee or a glass of wine, and let's dive into today's chapter. Hello, and welcome back to the Word Weaver podcast. It's been a hot minute since I picked up this microphone, but it feels really good to have a minute to breathe. I just poured myself my second cup of coffee. I'm all cozy in a nice sweatsuit and ready to just talk to you guys about what has been happening the past week and a half since I launched my first book, Behind the Red Door. It's been such a whirlwind. I am feeling so many different emotions and it's different than I expected. I mean, I knew it would be an emotional roller coaster, but I feel like the highest highs, there's mixed with this bittersweet feeling of knowing the book no longer belongs to me, but it belongs to all of you. But I also find great comfort in that knowing I'm passing the torch in a way and books are subjective. It'll be up for your interpretation, what you take from the story of Elizabeth Arden and my story. And I'm just excited to see how people perceive it in their own ways. So for this podcast episode, I'm going to be pretty real and raw. I don't think I'm even going to edit this because I just wanted to have an outlet to talk to all of you during this phase and to also answer the Q&A from the book launch that I didn't get to on launch day. I've been asked in a few interviews how I'm feeling after launching my first book and it's a mixed bag. I really feel a huge sense of relief, like all of this work for so many years, it's finally done. I've reached the destination, so to speak, and I also feel really proud of myself I don't think we say that enough about ourselves. It even saying it out loud feels a little odd because usually I'm telling other people, I'm so proud of you, good job. But I think it's important to take those moments of pride within yourself. For me, I know I've felt a lot of self-doubt leading up to this for so many years. So I'm trying to take the moments where I feel happy and fulfilled and prideful because I know myself well enough by now to know that usually is a fleeting feeling for me. I'm a perfectionist. I'm really hard on myself. I'm my own worst critic. So as I progress onto my next book and the high of this book launch starts to wear off, I know I will revert naturally to those feelings of self-doubt and criticism. I'm trying to work through that, but it's definitely hard in a career like writing where you're working alone most of the time, you're battling your own inner critic, and it's subjective. I've said that word a lot, but 
it isn't a math problem. There's no right and wrong answer. So there is a lot of room for judgment, criticism, different interpretations of meaning. Basically what I'm trying to say mostly for myself here, is that I shouldn't be fighting against these happy feelings. Like, I've worked towards this. It's okay to feel happy because even the past week or so, I felt myself even second-guessing my own happiness. I'm like, I shouldn't I shouldn't be this excited. I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I think that's a self-preservation defense mechanism that we all innately have to protect ourselves against judgment or negative feedback or rejection. So it's not second nature for me to just sit in it. And that's what I'm really trying to do is be very present. I've been journaling a lot more. I've been meditating twice a day, which sounds a little woo-woo, but it's really just taking a pause for my brain. I sit down for five minutes and I just try to soak in and absorb everything that's happening and commit it to memory so that when obstacles arise down the road or the going gets tough again, I have this to revert back to. Overall, I'm just feeling so excited and happy. The book is finally out in the world and it's starting to make its way into people's homes, into your libraries, into bookstores. It's such an exciting feeling every time I see a new photo of somebody with the hardcover or on your Kindle or Kobo. If you haven't received your book yet, I know Amazon for some reason is being really slow. Usually Amazon is the fastest for shipping. And on Amazon.ca, Amazon.com, I asked the publisher and basically they just said they're not quite sure what's going on, but there have been a lot of U.S. custom delays with COVID of getting this bulk shipment through to the fulfillment centers. COVID has caused a lot of delays with the printing presses as well. There's a huge backlog because they shut down at one point and they're still trying to catch up. And also their staff or their employees have returned kind of at half capacity so that they can social distance and it's slower with all the new PPE and not as many people on the floor. So that's one reason. And then just with mail getting through the U.S. The book is printed in the U.S. It's been really tough getting product of any kind in a book at this stage as a product. So I appreciate your patience. I wish there was something I could do. I do know that Indigo and Barnes & Noble and independent bookstores have somehow been getting books a lot faster, but have no fear. If you did order from Amazon, that's great. They have apparently shipped this week. We're in mid-May, so I know Amazon was saying end of June. I don't think it'll take that long. They just kind of give you that long lead time in case as they're waiting for the books to arrive from the States. So I did see an email that Amazon orders have started to ship, so you should get the book very soon if you've ordered from there. All right, now let's dive into your questions. Thank you so much for everyone who submitted a question on Instagram and my stories in the comment section. I've screenshotted all of them, so I have them in front of me. I haven't looked through them, but I'm just going to answer honestly off the cuff. And yeah, so let's get into it. The first question is, what did you lean on for encouragement to power through the long hours? Oh my God, I love this question. Okay, There are so many things. I'm going to try to distill this down. 
Yes, basically, as a writer, you are sitting for hours and hours and hours on end alone. You are the only one that can do this. It's not a task you can outsource. You're the only person that can write your book. So in a way, just knowing that I was the only one responsible for this was a way of feeling self-motivated because if I didn't do it, no one else would. The book would never get written. So I felt a lot of internal pressure in that sense, which was a good motivator to keep going. The biggest thing also is I set writing goals and deadlines for myself that encourages me to keep going when I really don't feel motivated to write. And it allows this big monstrous task of writing a book, which seems so daunting, to feel more in the realm of possibility by breaking it down into smaller goals. And by that I mean I would take the big word count, let's say it's 80,000 words, break it down by how many words can I write in a month, how many words can I write in a week, and that's my weekly word count goal. And then I have a daily word count goal, and I'm kind of like a kindergartner in this sense where I would have my word count goal taped to my wall and I would give myself star stickers if I hit it. And if I didn't get a star sticker, I was discouraged. So that was a way to encourage me to keep going. I also had a word count tracker in an Excel document. So just getting to update that at the end of the day or the end of the week was really motivating as well. Let's see, I have so many things. So I'm just gonna give it to you all because maybe something will be helpful. I also had this sticky note tape beside my computer and it's a quote, I think Nelson Mandela said it. A lot of other people have quoted it subsequently, but it just says, everything seems impossible until it's done. I don't know why, but that quote really motivated me every time I sat down to write because it just reminded me that even though it feels impossible right now, in the long run, in the long term, once it's done, I'll look back and feel so proud that I accomplished, quote unquote, the impossible. And that, again, is a really big thing that encouraged me to power through the long hours, was imagining that feeling of finishing. Like if you're a marathon runner, that feeling of crossing the finish line and that feeling of accomplishment once you've finished that goal or achieved a dream, really visualization and visualizing what that was going to feel like. I know meditation isn't for everyone, but for me, that really helped me to pause and visualize that feeling and kind of project that future self-image of somebody who has written a book. That allowed me to keep going to try to reach that feeling, if that makes sense. And then kind of the day-to-day ways that I encourage myself to just keep going were definitely having a nice writing environment or at least clean, neat, organized. I would wear cozy outfits, coffee. I am a huge coffee addict, probably an unhealthy amount. Well, definitely an unhealthy amount, but just having a little break, going to the kitchen, making myself a new coffee, even if it was decaf, just having that warm beverage. Lighting a candle made it a cozy environment to keep going. And then I always would allow myself to take breaks later in the afternoon by going for a run or a really long walk just to 
give my brain a little bit of a pause, get those endorphins, get some fresh air, move my body after sitting for such a long time. And I would find that on those runs, all of the work that I had done earlier in the day would start to marinate and in my mind and allowed me to return to the book with a clearer, fresh perspective. So definitely moving and giving myself that time allowed me to keep going. I'm sorry this answer is so long. I wish I could just give you one thing, but really the truth is it's just a lot of little things that I would lean on for encouragement to power through the long hours and to keep going. Luckily too, my favorite part of the whole publishing process is the writing itself. I love that feeling of getting into flow, tuning out the white noise, and kind of just romanticizing the process, remembering why I'm doing this because I truly love writing and words. All of that combines into helping you keep going. So hopefully if you're a writer, this encourages you as well or gives you some tips. The next question is, what has surprised you most about the journey of writing your first book? Oh my gosh, everything, honestly. But really the biggest thing I think is just how long of a process it really is and kind of how archaic the traditional publishing world is. I think a lot of people think you just write the first draft. And I honestly was naive when I first started. I thought, okay, you write the draft, you submit it to a publisher, and it's on shelf a couple months later. And that is not it at all. There are a lot of gatekeepers in this process, which is another thing that surprised me, just how many levels of approval you have to get through and how long that really takes. So honestly, the writing itself for me was the most enjoyable, but also the shortest part of it all. The research took a lot longer. Getting a literary agent before you even get a book deal is a long process in itself. At least it was for me. My book is nonfiction, so I learned you have to write a book proposal along with a query letter to send to a literary agent for them to even look at your manuscript. And then you have to remember they have a million other writers who are trying to get them to sign them as well. So to read your manuscript once they finally request it, which could take several months, to read a full book for them and they have a huge pile of books to get through could be another several months. So just the slow process, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised because reading does take a long time, especially when you're reading critically to sign a contract with a literary agent or a publisher. Yeah, it just really, really slow. And then once you sign a book deal, I was surprised that it takes one to two years before your book is even on shelf. It has to go through multiple rounds of edits, cover design, putting together your marketing and sales plan. And really, you're just getting in line. You're getting in the queue behind other writers who have signed before you so that everybody kind of gets their launch week to shine and then it's really the onus is on the author so that's another thing that surprised me was that even though publishers do help put together some assets once your book is launched into the world they have to move on to the next author in the queue and it really is on you to shout from the rooftops and advocate for your own book no one is going to care about it as deeply as you will And there are people who will help along the way, absolutely. 
But for the long haul, it's really on you to kind of switch from that writing hat to that marketing hat to make sure that people know about your work. Because you can write the best book in the entire world, but if nobody knows to read it, then you're doing yourself a disservice at the end of the day. So just kind of learning all of these little things along the way really all were surprising. And I feel more equipped for my next book of what to expect. But even every book is a different journey in itself. So I think I'm just going to keep learning and continue being surprised as I continue on with this author journey and this new career. The next question is, what was the biggest hurdle in your journey to launch? Great question. And the first thing that comes to mind was the part of the journey where the work no longer just belonged to me, but there were a lot of chefs in the kitchen and there were a lot of opinions on how to package the story. When I was writing it, when I was drafting it and going through multiple rounds of edits myself, I really had control of it. I knew how I wanted the book to go. But then as soon as a literary agent, my editor, and the publishing house got involved, everybody has a different opinion on how the narrative should go because it's so subjective. And I really found it challenging. I'm remembering certain instances exactly where these are the experts. They're the publishing experts. They have been doing this for so long and I'm so new that I question my own work. I questioned the whole structure of the story because different people had differing opinions. They put their own projections on the work. So I had one editor who at one point thought I should just cut my story out of the book completely and proceed with a fictionalized version of Elizabeth Arden's story. So like a historical fiction novel because she thought that would be more commercially viable given that I am a nobody nobody knows who I am so my story is not as interesting and when you have this incredible editor telling you that's what you should do I was ready to do it I was like okay if that's what you think is a good story I will cut myself out completely but then I would get different opinions from other people in the industry other editors my literary agent early reviewers who all had different opinions on which part of the story they liked best. And I found myself questioning the whole project and really wondering what is good, what is bad writing? Is this a good story? And that was a really big moment of having to trust my own gut instincts of why I wanted to share this story and the reason why I'm in the book. Trust me, I wanted to cut myself out as well because... There's nothing more humbling or humiliating than writing about yourself, putting your flaws and vulnerabilities out there. When I, it was getting closer to publication, I was really nervous about how people would take this material that is from over a decade ago in my own life, but people would read it and think it's fresh and how I'm feeling now. So I was all for cutting it, but really I had to go back to the core reason of why I'm in the book was to bring Elizabeth Arden's story to a new generation of people who might never have even heard of Elizabeth Arden, wouldn't necessarily pick up a book about her, but might be an 18-year-old trying to figure out their career path. They might resonate more with my story. And also, 
the real reason that I'm in the book is to show that juxtaposition of how much or how little has changed for women a century later. My story can put Elizabeth up on a pedestal and really highlight her achievements compared to our modern world. It's easy to say now that the book is out and it's getting such great reviews of how it is structured to say, oh yes, I made the right decision. It's good that I trusted my gut instinct on how I wanted the book to go. But at the time, I distinctly remember crying and feeling so unsure of myself, of my abilities as a writer, whether I'd wasted all of these years working on a wrong version and I would have to rewrite it all as a historical fiction novel of whether anybody was ever going to like it, whether I should have just stayed working for Elizabeth Arden in marketing and never even tried to become a writer. All of these self-doubt, the imposter syndrome was really, really strong because I was having experts in the publishing field telling me this is more commercially viable, this is what will sell, this is what you should be doing as a writer, and really fighting against that and trying to listen to my own voice when I am so new at it, I didn't have the confidence or the past proof to show that this is all going to work out. Trust your gut. You do know how to write a book because I'd never done it before. So yeah, that was definitely the biggest hurdle that whole phase. And I can say now it all turned out for the best. But if I have any advice from all of this, it's for new writers to really trust your gut instinct. If something doesn't feel aligned with you, listen to the experts, listen to the editors, but also trust your gut instinct. You are the closest to this material. You know it inside and out. And they also have different motivations for the advice that they're giving you. So basically what I'm trying to say is just trust your gut instinct. It will never steer you wrong. The next question is, what part of your book are you most excited for people to read? Overall, I'm most excited for people to get to know Elizabeth Arden. Her life is fascinating. Her personal relationships, her romantic relationships, her professional life, everything that she does reads kind of like stranger than fiction. It doesn't seem real, but it's all true. So everybody just learning those anecdotes getting to see the dawn of kind of New York City. We've all seen New York as the backdrop of movies, TV shows, read about it in books, but getting to see Elizabeth Arden's version of New York at the dawn of the 20th century, early 1900s through to the 1960s, adds so much color to the city for me. When the Brooklyn Bridge was just getting built, when there were horse and buggies instead of yellow taxi cabs. I'm excited for people to fall in love with the city and Elizabeth Arden the way I did in that sense. And then I'm also most excited actually for people to read part two. I didn't expect this to be my favorite part of the book until I started editing it and working with the publisher. But by the end, I really liked that whole section. It's based in Geneva for me and old world Paris and London for Elizabeth Arden. So really it's the whole Europe section. Reading about Elizabeth Arden, having drinks at the Ritz bar with Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Gertrude Stein, her meeting Chanel at Angeline's in Paris, 
that whole section was just really fun to research and write, so I think it also will be the most exciting, juicy, fun part to read, or at least I hope so, if you like to be transported to old world Europe, that glitz and glamour of that phase of life, I think you'll really enjoy that part. The next question is, do you remember the first moment you realized you wanted to be a writer? There's not one specific moment that comes to mind, but I can tell you that my earliest memories of my childhood include wanting to be a writer. It first started with my love of books, my love of reading. It's all I wanted to do. It's all I did. So I fell in love with words first and the patterns that they form on the page. And I loved reading about strong female characters like Matilda, Pippi Longstocking, Harriet the Spy, Joe in Little Women. I loved Little House on the Prairie. And I distinctly remember not just falling in love with the characters and the scene and the setting, of these books, but also starting to wonder from a very early age about the author, about the person behind the books, which I think is a little unique for a child. Maybe it's not, but I was starting to question, what kind of person can create this? Who creates these worlds? What a cool thing to be able to do with your imagination. So there was always that inclination that, oh, I want to create these characters and I want to create these worlds. So it feels cliche to say because I feel every writer says, oh, it started in childhood, but it really did. I always had that inclination that I wanted to be a writer. And as I got older, I suppressed it because I wanted to follow kind of the structured path of financial success, of what I thought I needed to do to be a fulfilled, successful person in the world. And I thought reading and writing were just hobbies, something that I would always do for fun It took me a lot longer to realize this could be a career path and something that I don't just enjoy, but I'm skilled at and I can make money at doing this. I mentioned this later in the book, but the best way that I can explain how I decided to take a left turn in my career and pursue this full time is really that it was just this calling that couldn't be ignored. It was whispering and nudging me for so long and I kept ignoring it, ignoring it, putting it on the back burner and it wouldn't go away and it just started to kind of fester and grow until I couldn't ignore it anymore. The next question is, what is your favorite thing that you learned about Elizabeth Arden? Everything that I uncovered about her was a revelation and fascinating to me, specifically the things that are included in the book's synopsis or on the back cover jacket, that she was the wealthiest woman, wealthiest self-made woman in the world for three decades from the 1930s to the 1960s, the first businesswoman on the cover of Time magazine, and the first woman inducted into the U.S. Business Hall of Fame. All fascinating to me that I couldn't believe no one else knew this. Also that she was Canadian-born from outside of Toronto. It's called Woodbridge now, but before it was just an undeveloped farmland outside of the city of Toronto. That was really interesting. And then I think other than those obvious big picture facts, I think my favorite thing that I learned about her was that she was a feminist, one of the earliest people to support the suffrage movement and her tenacity to follow a different path than society had set out for her. She couldn't even get a credit card. She couldn't get a bank loan. She couldn't rent an apartment 
or an office without a man's signature or a husband. And she was so driven and tenacious in figuring out a different way to get to where she wanted to go, even though it went against the grain of society. And that was a really hard thing to do back then to be different and to march to your own drum. So throughout the book, the anecdotes that I include, my favorites are where she wouldn't take no for an answer. She hit a roadblock or she hit an obstacle that society presented and she found another way to get to where she wanted to go. That really inspired me and was my favorite thing that I learned about her. The next question is, do you have any advice for someone who dreams of becoming an author one day? Oh, I just want to have coffee with you and chat your ear off because I have so much advice to give. I think my biggest piece of advice though is to have that self-motivation, grit, patience, and determination to see that goal through no matter what. If you can believe it, you can achieve it. It is so cliche, but I truly believe everybody who desires to be an author or a writer has that capability in them. The hardest thing is coming up against our own fear of failure. We can create so many excuses of why we haven't yet written a book, why we haven't incorporated it into our day-to-day. That's a really key piece of advice is if you want to be a writer or an author, you have to make it tangible. Put it in your agenda, put it on your wall, write a contract to yourself, put it in your wallet with a deadline so that it becomes more part of your daily habits versus this abstract, lofty goal that you'll do someday. Take it down from the ether and put it into the physical world so that you actually prioritize it and do it. If you have a writing session every day, even for 30 minutes, then it becomes more of this muscle that you're training and honing and you'll look back in six months, in eight months, in 12 months and see how far you've come and you will have written a full book by just kind of keeping your focus on the day-to-day, the weekly habits of writing versus getting overwhelmed by the bigger picture. The next question is, if there's one word to describe this whole journey, what would it be? Hmm, if I had to describe this journey in one word, I think I would say illuminating. That's the first thing that just came to mind. And I say illuminating because it has shone a light on my own capabilities, my own psyche. I feel enlightened by this process, both by the work and revising and editing the words, but also the moments of self-reflection and introspection that writing gives. And then it's also been illuminating on the publishing process side. I have learned something new every single day throughout this journey of how to get a book from your head to pen and to paper to a book that you see on shelf it has been completely illuminating so i hope that word makes sense of why i picked it and i think it's pretty accurate to describe another word that comes to mind is humbling i feel very humbled by this whole process but yeah if i had to pick one i think it would be illuminating The next question is, was there a section of the book that was the hardest to write? Great question. Yes, overall, the sections that were hardest 
to write were the ones about me, even though they required less research because it's my life, I know it all. They were the hardest because I am a character and it is so vulnerable writing about yourself and examining your own shortcomings. So that was challenging. And writing about material that is old. It, I have grown so much since a lot of the events that have transpired in the book. And to edit those almost a decade after they have happened, trying to go back into that mindset because I can't write from my current self because I haven't learned those lessons yet as the character, so to speak, in the book. I can't be fully enlightened and have had all this growth. I have to write those scenes as I was experiencing them back then. So they were very challenging to go back to those emotions. And interestingly enough, let's say the scenes where I'm kind of falling in love for the first time, I was concurrently falling in love with my current fiance. So I was able to draw on those emotions that I was feeling in the present, but applied them to the past. So that helped kind of mitigate the challenges that arose with diving back into those feelings. And the other biggest challenge for me to write in a larger sense was how to structurally put this together. Should I write the book in first person? Should I transition to third person with Elizabeth? Should it all be from my point of view? Should it all be from Elizabeth's point of view? At one point I had a Liz chapter and a Lou chapter. I didn't have us combined and that was really challenging to rewrite and figure out which anecdotes from my life worked well with her life in parallel so that there's synchronicity there. And I found in early read-throughs when I had beta readers or critique readers look at early drafts, everybody weighted our stories equally when it went chapter by chapter, which is natural to do when you're reading a book like that. You weigh each story the same. And the challenge was that Elizabeth has a full life arc, a full trajectory in the book, whereas my story is like five years of my life that I'm trying to stretch out over her entire lifespan. So naturally, the things that I'm experiencing in that small window of life are never going to be as dramatic or big as what she experienced. I mean, she went through two world wars, the Great Depression, an economic collapse, all of that. She had huge things that were so much more tantalizing to read about and people were getting caught up in the fact that my life seemed to pale in comparison and that's not what I wanted people to take away from the book. I didn't want them to look at our stories equally. I wanted them to really learn about Elizabeth Arden and have me there to highlight her. So I think at the end it was a really delicate dance. I feel very proud of how I was able to combine them and cut the fat and make sure that each story really shines. And I'm looking more to Elizabeth for inspiration rather than comparing myself directly against her, if that makes any sense. The next question is, if you could tell your younger writing self anything, what would it be? Well, I would tell her that you are going to become very proficient at sitting for very long periods of time 
And no, really just I would want her to know that there isn't just one linear path to success. There are multiple routes to get to where you want to go. And it's okay to veer off the beaten path, so to speak. And also to realize that every no is a next. You will experience a lot of rejection in this industry. In life, really, people experience rejection of all kinds. But I feel, especially as a writer, rejection is just part of the nature of the beast. So I would tell my younger writing self that every no is a next. It means you just haven't found the right person yet. And I think it was Lady Gaga said after she won the Oscar that there can be 99 people in a room who don't believe in you and don't think you should succeed and try to bring you down. And all it takes is that one person to say yes. So it's important just to keep going, keep striving towards your dreams, and that anything that seems like a hurdle or a huge obstacle at the time really is just allowing you to detour and pivot and find a different route to get to where you're trying to go to achieve your dream. The next question is, were you cognizant of the fact that some characters in your book would be essentially reading facts about themselves? And did this have any major impact on how you wrote? Great question, and this is something that is a huge challenge with writing nonfiction. You're writing about real people and characterizing them in a book. So it's funny that you say this, and I've thought about this a lot since the book has come out, because while I was writing it in the early stages, I wasn't thinking about that. I wasn't thinking that these are real people and that they're going to read about themselves, which I think is a good thing because that allowed me to just write honestly and authentically. It could be because this is my first book and I've never done it before, but I wasn't thinking that far ahead of the publishing process. I was more just trying to get through to the end of a draft and write the full manuscript. That was my only goal at the time. So I was just writing. I was letting it flow and I wasn't thinking. And then as I started editing years later with the my editor and the publishing team and having all of these people's opinions, realizing they're talking about these quote-unquote characters, but they're real people in my life, that was really where it kind of hit home. Like, oh my God, people are going to read about themselves. There are certain names that have been changed for privacy in the book. And I say this in the preface, and it was really important for me to articulate that all of the personal anecdotes that you read about in the book from my life are a subjective snapshot of events as told through my lens. Memories are fallible. Basically, when you're trying to recreate a memory, even for myself, it is clouded by my own projection of how that event went. And somebody else who experienced it with me will have a whole other projection or perception of how it impacted them. So I really wanted to make it clear that any anecdotes or stories that I tell about my life are reconstructions of reality filtered through my mind and through my lens. And that's how I perceived it. If somebody else perceived anything differently, that is totally valid and totally okay. But in this instance, I, as the narrator, have an obligation to tell it from my point of view. I tried to be as objective as possible and make sure that I was using words like 
I think or I thought versus we thought because I can't impose thoughts or feelings onto other people without them having their say in it. So I was really cognizant in the editing process of not changing the vulnerability or the raw reality of what I wrote, but just making sure that everything was from my point of view versus imposing thoughts and feelings onto somebody else. It's definitely nerve-wracking for people to read about themselves because it's only a snapshot of events. It's not even the full spectrum of who they are in a book. It's kind of like an Instagram highlight reel. I can't include every single aspect of everyone's personality. Even my sisters are in the book and you don't get the full spectrum of who they are as people. You just get little snapshots. So it's always daunting for people to read about themselves and how I'm portraying them. But I think I did a fairly good job or honest job of keeping things accurate and from my lens at that time. And it isn't necessarily how I feel now. People grow, evolve, and change. The next question is, imagine that you are moving and can only take with you your newly created book and three others from your bookshelves. What are the three books you could not leave behind? Wow, great question. Hardest question in the entire world because it's so hard to pick favorite children. But okay, let's just go off the top of my head. The three other books I could not leave behind. The first one that comes to mind is Just Kids by Patti Smith. This is one of my all-time favorite books. I've reread it a few times. I could reread it again and again. I just love her descriptions of New York, the East Village, the Beatnik generation. I love that book. Next would be, I don't know, I guess Harry Potter. That seems so cliche, but it's a thick book. I could reread it. It's just one of those classics you want on your bookshelf. I could reread that book a million times and never get bored. It gives me a good escape from my own work too. I can go into this kind of fantasy world of wizarding. So yeah, I guess Harry Potter. And then Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. I love that book. I've also read it a couple times. It's just a classic and I have a beautiful edition of it here. So I would bring that book. I know I'm probably not going to sleep tonight because I'm just going to start thinking of all these other books that I should have said in this answer, but that is the honest truth of what just came to mind. So I will let you know in another episode if I think of something different because I know it will bother me that I left out a certain book if I did. The next question is, it is so obvious that you were passionate about your research into Elizabeth Arden's work and life. Thank you. What was a little known story or fact that you stumbled upon that you most loved? great question. I feel like I kind of gave a vague answer to this earlier because I was just saying I loved all of the Elizabeth Arden anecdotes, but I would have to say the relationship Elizabeth had with her younger sister Gladys and how Gladys comes into her life to work for the company. She leaves an abusive marriage back in Canada. Elizabeth takes her in and gives her a job at her company and then also brings her over to run the Paris division where Gladys ends up, this might be a spoiler alert if you haven't read it, but she ends up staying in Paris, France. And I don't want to give too much of this part away, but let's just say there's a little story in the book about Gladys and Liz during World War II, and it has to do with Nazi Germany. And I just couldn't believe that this was 
true. It was very fascinating to me. And then also just little stories about Liz, like her relationship with Queen Elizabeth. In one scene, Elizabeth gets her finger bitten off by one of her horses in her stables. And she gets a sewn on later that evening, luckily. But the queen heard about it and sent her a letter that said, I do hope your finger is growing back nicely, dear. And I just thought things like that really were fun for me to uncover these old letters I found all of these old receipts signed by Elizabeth Arden and Marilyn Monroe when Marilyn came to the Red Door in Los Angeles or New York to get ready for a big movie premiere. And just things like that I found really cool to stumble upon these old artifacts or these old true stories that are just seem unbelievable but really did happen. Oh, and lastly, again, no spoilers, but the story about Liz and her second husband related to their honeymoon. I'll leave it at that, but that story was really surprising and fascinating to me when I discovered it. I only have two more questions, so thank you for bearing with me so far. Hopefully I haven't rambled too much. I feel like this episode is going on for a very long time, but I just want to give you full, robust answers to your questions, and it's fun for me to reflect back on the process. These questions are amazing. So the next one is, if your book becomes a Hollywood movie, which actress would you want playing you? Oh my god. It's so fun to think about this. It's so hard to answer though, because I have no idea who I'd want to play me. And I'm 18 to 25 in the book, so a younger version of me I love Florence Pugh. She would be amazing if she ever wanted to play me. I love her. I used to think it'd be cool if Elizabeth Olsen played me in a movie version just because I have such an obsession, a lifelong obsession with the Olsen twins and she is their sister. Also, I've seen her in some indie films and I really like her acting style in them. I haven't seen WandaVision yet, so I don't know if I'm basing it off of that, but just from the little indie films I've seen. Hmm. Other fun ones, and by the way, this is nothing to do with who I think looks like me, it's just actresses that I like that could be fun, would be Lily Collins, Lucy Hale, Emma Watson, Margaret Qualley. I think she's a great actress. Honestly, it's so tough. I don't know who I would want to play a younger version of me. There's probably new actresses on the scene that I have no idea about. Maybe an unknown would be great, but yeah, it's just really fun to dream and think about who could play you. That would be wild to see that on screen. Okay, I just realized I have three more short questions. I will try to answer these succinctly and quickly so I don't bore you, and they are, is writing as solitary as it seems? Could you tell us a bit about your process? Love this question. Yes, for me, It is as solitary as it seems, and it's really hard to explain to people why I can't even just break for lunch, because I think a lot of people who don't understand what you're doing, they just think, oh, you're sitting at home, like, banging away on a keyboard, that the words just flow out that naturally, and you can break whenever you want, but for me, when you're creating a whole new world, you're creating characters, you're creating this feeling that you want to emit it's really hard to break from that and every distraction it takes 
10 times longer to get back into that flow of everything that has been percolating within your inner psyche. So that's why for me, I have to turn my phone off. I get Jeff to hide it so I don't even know where it is. And I will have to disappear for long stretches of time because when I'm in that state, I really have to tune out the real world and hone into that word world that I am building in order to create something that is meaningful and readable and has a deeper universal takeaway or feeling. Maybe there are some writers out there who have a better time jumping between different emotions or different states and can get back to that writing state a lot quicker. Who knows, maybe as I go on with this author career, my subsequent books, I will get better at switching gears within my own brain. While I'm in the writing process, I can't even read other books because I find the voices of other authors distracting and it gets into my own psyche. So it really does require an immense amount of solitude to not just sit there and do the actual writing, but allowing your brain to have the thoughts percolate have your antenna up, collecting information, processing it, filtering out what's important, what's not. Your brain is always firing on all cylinders, not just while you're writing, but the process of creating a book. I hope this is making sense, but for me, I really do find I can't have any distractions or white noise clouding what I'm trying to convey from these cinematic images forming in my brain and translating them through the ends of my fingers onto the keyboard or onto paper if I'm writing by longhand and making it relatable and readable, digestible and informative for other people. It really is about locking myself in a room and allowing that momentum to build and to let the words flow and giving myself the space and time to do so. We're so used to these hits of instant gratification, wanting to get in there and bang out the words and get out. And sometimes you can do that. I mean, for freelance writing for articles, you're on a deadline, you have to do that. And there is something to be said about efficiency and not wasting time. But to write a full book that has deep meaning and takeaway and a lot of feeling, to emote that feeling, you have to, at least for me, feel it myself and get into that mindset. And that takes a lot of time and not having anything else cloud the judgment. So luckily I am an introvert and this is my innate nature to be alone and focus on a project. So otherwise I don't think I would be in the right career path because it's a lot of sitting by yourself and slogging away putting word after word until you have a completed manuscript next question is if you had to pick what has been your favorite moment so far in your debut novel journey if i had to pick it was writing the first few drafts being in that state of flow seeing the whole cinematic imagery come together and at that stage i didn't have any outside voices there were no other chefs in the kitchen giving their opinion or trying to transition the book into a product and make it commercially saleable. It was just me, my thoughts, these scenes, old world New York, old world Europe, and 
getting into that minutia and creating these settings or these scenes on the page. So that really was my favorite process, those days where the words just flowed. Obviously, there were days where it was very frustrating and nothing would happen and I'd have bad weeks at time where I didn't think I would ever get through to the end of the draft. But honestly, typing the end on the first draft was such a rewarding feeling. I loved it. And then I'd have to say, fast forward to this phase now where the book is out in the world. I'm so pleased with the final product and it's so rewarding seeing it make its way into other people's homes, into their libraries, onto their bookshelves. That is just the best feeling in the entire world. And the very last question is, could you tease us about your next book? Yes, absolutely. So I have already finished the first draft of my second book and it's in the editing, honing, tidying stages to get it perfect, perfect, perfect before it goes out on submission. And yes, it is very different. It's not historical nonfiction, but it is historical fiction. And it's kind of like a murder mystery psychological thriller, but based in the 1920s, 1930s. It's based in the Berkshires, which is outside of Manhattan. It's in Massachusetts. And yeah, I'm very excited for you to read something new from me. It's still got the historical elements. I'm finding that I really love writing about older world, older times, because there's something nice about writing before people had cell phones or technology. It, ta- it strips away that element and allows you to focus on the people and the characters and the emotions that they're feeling. And I just love researching about that time period. So I'm finding I'm drawn to that. And I wanted to write a page turner, a real Nancy Drew, Agatha Christie type of whodunit. So yeah, that is my next book project. Thank you again for submitting these incredible questions. I had a lot of fun answering them. Hopefully I didn't ramble on too much and I gave you some informative answers to take away. If you have any other questions, I am an open book. Always feel free to ask me. I feel like I have learned a lot throughout this process and I still continue to learn new things every single day. I'm really excited to keep sharing some future press features and interviews that I've done. I would love to hear what you think of the book after you receive and have read your copy. If you're able to do so, I would love if you could leave a review on Indigo, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. It really helps the algorithm for people to find books. Reviews apparently are super helpful for new writers, so that would be awesome if you're able to do that. No pressure, of course. And please do feel free to keep tagging and sharing the book. I love seeing the different photos that you guys post. It honestly makes my day every single time. It doesn't get old. And the last thing is I'm currently running a launch giveaway. It will end on May 20th and I'll announce the five winners on May 21st. So yes, five different people will win. And all you have to do, it's super easy, is just post about the book, whether post a photo of yourself with the book, share something from my page, Make sure to tag me so that I can see it and enter you into the draw. And also, if you do leave a review on Amazon, Indigo, Barnes & Noble, 
your name will be entered five times, five additional times into the giveaway. So you have a better chance of winning one of the five prize packs. And the prize pack itself is a signed hardcover of the book, an Elizabeth Arden lipstick in shade Red Door, of course. It's actually the lipstick shade that I'm wearing in my book trailer. It's the red lipstick that I always wear, so it's a good one. You'll get a custom bookmark and also a limited edition behind the red door light pink crew neck with cursive red font that says behind the red door. It's really cute. It's my current favorite sweater. So yeah, you'll get one of those prize packs and everyone is eligible to enter worldwide shipping. So yes, that will be ongoing until 1159 Eastern on May 20th. All right, I have probably talked your ear off enough at this stage. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing and supporting Behind the Red Door. This is so exciting. I feel like it's just the beginning. There's so many more things to come. And I will see you in the next Word Weaver podcast episode. Bye. That's it for today's episode of the Word Weaver podcast. If you like what you heard today, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes, screenshot and share it on social media, and be sure to check out the show notes at louiseclairjohnson.com slash podcast. You can also find us on Instagram at wordweaver podcast. Until next time. You call it substance over style.